Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 29 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, August the 31st. First, I talk to Fadi Gerhard, who runs Symbol Solutions, an Australian software company focused on energy management and mobility solutions. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Symbol Energy Platform, or Symbol Sense, is an integrated hardware and real-time software solution that enables businesses to visualize, control, and monetize their energy systems. The company's software-as-a-service platform has Internet of Things capabilities, and it empowers enterprises and consumers to remotely automate energy savings opportunities to reduce their energy bill. Symbol operates in the SME software-as-a-service market and targets the distribution of its platform through channel partners. Symbol has an international presence with offices in Sydney and Melbourne, London, Auckland, Dubai and Da Nang in Vietnam. And then I talked to economist RMIT professor Sinclair Davidson about what we can expect from Australia's new treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. But first, let's talk to Fadi Gerhardt. Fadi, tell us how Symbol works. Yeah, sure. So, um, look, primarily we're an energy management solution provider. It's a combination of a software platform, which is the Symbol Sense platform, and an IoT device. And the use cases we solve are varied, but if we focus on the energy solution, uh, we bundle it with an energy submeter or a device that literally sits in, 
in our terminology, over the top of our current electricity meter and is connected to the various circuits inside a business um, that sends data in real time, five-second data, 30-second data, back to our platform, and it has all the alerts and capability to understand the energy usage of a business down to a circuit level. So to give you an example, in a home, if we were just to keep it simple, in a home, say a typical home that might have solar panels on the roof, a swimming pool in the backyard, connected to air conditioning, lighting, the PowerPoints. I've just mentioned five different circuits that one device would be monitoring if it was sitting in the meter box at a home, plugged into our apps and plugged into our dashboard to provide the business customer real-time understanding of their energy usage and understand where there's potential pain points that they can then go and, um, um, I guess, apply energy efficiency projects uh, against. Uh, you have, I mean, you have an integrated hardware, real-time software solution, so obviously businesses can visualise, control, monetize energy systems, and you also offer a software-as-a-service platform that has Internet of Things capabilities, and that empowers uh, consumers to remotely automate energy savings uh, Correct. to reduce their energy bill. So tell us, what is your target market here? Really, the, the market we're going after are business customers um, with an energy spend of in excess of, say, $20,000 per year, where they might be across many sites or one location, and they're really trying to get a handle of the energy costs that are obviously um, spiralling upwards. Um, the first thing they look at is can they actually control or make you better use of what they're actually using the energy for? Can they shift some of their behaviour? Can they move some equipment to start at a... <clears throat> different time that might cost uh, less energy or probably more importantly, can they make use of some energy efficiency initiatives such as putting in LED lighting, putting in solar panels on the roof, making use of the energy generated by the sun for the, some of their equipment. Um, and it's, it's really down to being able to manage their energy use better. And you can't uh, manage what you can't measure. So we start with the concept that measurement is key. Right, right. So, in effect, it's like a smart meter system. It is. It is technically providing you real-time data like a smart meter. The, the difference is that um, it's connected down to a lower level of detail than a smart meter would. So, a smart meter would give you granular data, but still at a, what I'd call a head meter level, at an aggregated level. So, once again, with the if we use the home bill uh, or the home scenario, and you said, well, a smart meter is reading real-time data, but across all those circuits and giving it to you in one item. You still can't tell whether, hold on, if you replace the lights, how much would you actually reduce your energy? If you put solar on the roof, which parts would you be able to shift? So you're getting real-time data, but granular level as far as usage circuits rather than just real-time data, which a smart meter gives you without the granularity of the circuit-level monitoring. So the beauty of the system would be also to actually encourage smarter use of Correct. electricity. Exactly. And that's, that's, the key. that's the key driver for why businesses are looking at a solution like this is what's happening today is organisations would come knocking on their door and say, hey, we can sell you electricity at a cheaper price, uh, whether they're an energy broker or an energy consultant. You know, you might be on X cents per kilowatt hour tariff. We can put you on this deal if you sign up for five years. 
or we'll put you know 10 kilowatts of solar on your roof even though you don't know what your usage is and you might only need five kilowatts so it's making these business customers a lot more informed about their energy use before they sit down to go okay how do i now start to try and get some control over my costs and of course they they are completely in control of it too correct so there's there's ability for them to remotely turn things down or turn things off which you know, obviously, I guess, gives them an ability to um, address some outliers where, um, you know, they, they have they have the capability to be in control of their own destiny. How much they use that is obviously up to them. And the fact that it can be remotely activated means that it can apply to any business which has uh, many branches across all areas. Yeah, and a very, very good point there, Leon. And I think the key thing here is that multi-site is a really critical part for our go-to-market. So organisations that might be looking at, you know, I've got 10 stores doing the same thing every day, day in, day out. They might buy their electricity from 10 different uh, electricity retailers, but the usage patterns are similar. How do they get some savings across the board, which allows them to negotiate better with their electricity supplier? Or how do they look at equipment that may be starting to reach an end of life or need some maintenance and they still don't have an understanding because they just see the bill on a monthly basis and go, well, the bill is the bill without knowing that that piece of equipment is probably uh, operating well below its uh, efficiency ratings that it should be, and it needs either an overhaul or replacement. Now, uh, you you obviously are targeting small to medium-sized businesses, but uh, are are, are residential premises also Mm -hmm. in your area? They are. I think when we talk about the residential market, there are actually two players. The first one, which is sort of a market we're going after in the U.K., um, is is where the deployment of smart meters is progressing fairly well. So there is some sort of data being made available by the utilities to the end customer, but that data is not engaging enough for the re- for the resident URI to actually make some sense of it and go, okay, I understand now how I'm using my electricity based on this app that I get. I now know that I should probably shift my dishwasher usage time to this time, or I should, you know shift my pool pump to be run at that time of the day. So that insight and that analytics is not being provided. And what, we, what we're able to do is through our platform be able to provide that capability to the resident via the electricity supplier. Second level is if they went down the path of what we were just talking about earlier being the sub-metering, then they're obviously getting even more control of what their usage patterns are like. Now, that obviously requires an installer or an electrician to install that submeter in the meter box, um, but you're getting another level of detail. So there's two layers um, that we can take into the residential market, uh, not too dissimilar from what we're doing with the business market as well. Right. Now, your, can your platform be attached to any device? Yes, and that's the key part of our value proposition. We, we say we're basically hardware agnostic. Now, we take a bundled solution into the Australian market because – it makes sense and the business customers um, you know, are looking for a total turnkey solution. But there are instances where we'll have clients say, well, we might already have a particular um, data logger or a smart meter that um, gives us some granular visibility, but we don't have the insights and the analytics, I guess, um, in the platform. Um, can you provide that? And so therefore, we'll provide our software sitting over the top or we'll provide uh, instances, for instance, where maybe electricity isn't the energy that they're wanting to monitor. They're wanting to monitor gas usage. 
And so that requires a different type of meter. We'll provide the gas meter solution with our software. Um, so we, we, we cater for all those scenarios. Now, who are your large-scale partners? So the, if we look at the Australian market, the first thing we did was in, <clears throat> we actually there was a marketing campaign done by one of those large-scale partners being Cynix. So Cynix is a distributor. They're a uh, New York Stock Exchange-listed um, Taiwanese-headquartered distributor. So they move product. Think of um, you know anything from um, technology, uh, monitors, PCs, etc., all the way through to um, IoT and even software licenses. And um, we signed up with them uh, back in May, and the marketing programs have kicked in. And they have over 6,000 resellers in the market in Australia that they promote the capability that they have and the various technology partners that they have to those resellers who then sell into the business market. So whether that's a reseller of energy solutions or technology or whatever, the point is that we plan to roll our solution out through that distribution network to the resellers in the market. So they're, they're, they're both a partner as well as a fulfillment warehousing logistics partner as well. Um, so that hardware that I was referring to and the software activation cards for our platform are all basically shipped to our end customers via that distributor. But our whole go-to-market is partners. So we have energy consulting partners. We have telcos such as Optus that are partners. And they take our solution to market to their end customers as a bundled uh, white-label solution. So they literally put their brand, we put their brand over our solution and they take it to market as, as theirs. Now, uh, you, you said you're working with UK utilities. Um, how yeah. will that impact on the business? And do you see synergies with the Australian market? Yeah, when we targeted the UK market, we targeted because of, um, and I think it's very topical that we talk about it today, we targeted because of the certainty of policy. So the UK introduced uh, smart meter legislation uh, in around 2006, 2007, and obviously um, that legislation is still in place and it's all about rolling out smart meters across the business and residential customer base in the UK by 2020. And despite any shifts of you know, political winds, um, that legislation has stood the test of time. And so we're working with um, you know, organisations over there that want to work with their end customers. So think of any large organisation that has a very large customer base, utilities being one of them, um, energy services companies, LED lighting companies, all those organisations that are wanting to have a different discussion or an expanded discussion with their customer base uh, could be a target channel for us to take our solution to market. So that's, that's the, the, the driver behind the UK strategy. Australia is literally in a similar place, except obviously, um, you know, our, our positioning is, is slightly different from the point of view that we um, obviously first and foremost are passionate about sustainability and energy efficiency and helping businesses save money. So that's the primary driver. And we target partners that are working with their customers to help them uh, find ways to save money on their energy. Well, Fadi, it's been fascinating talking to you and uh, Symbol sounds absolutely brilliant and looking forward to seeing further developments of it. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Leon. Good talking to you. And now let's talk to economist Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair Davidson, we have a new treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Yes. And uh, what are his big challenges? 
Uh, to be quite honest, I think telling a story as to why he is the treasurer and not the current prime minister who was the treasurer just last week. Um, it's it's going to be very interesting because nothing, as far as I can see, justifies a change in government. And there's, I can't see how there's going to be a change in economic narrative. So it's 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 hard, it's hard to know what actually they're going to do next because last week they dumped their signature policy, which was the uh, the company tax cuts, and of course they simultaneously also dumped the, the the national energy guarantee, and so it's almost like they're starting from a clean slate. What are they actually going to be doing, and how do they justify taking over from the previous team that was in charge of government? Well. When they dumped the tax cuts, all of those tax cuts were factored into the current budget. Yes. So there will have to be new costings. And those costings, as I understand, have to come out by September the 30th. And at the same time, we're probably looking at a MIEFO in December. Yes. And in addition to that, given that they're going to an election in May we are probably going to have to have a budget in February or March. I think the timing of it makes it very interesting because uh, we have a Victorian election in November, we have a New South Wales election in March of next year, and we have to have a federal election. Um, I struggle to see how we will have a federal election in May of next year. I kind of think they'll have to go earlier. Um, so I, I suspect they might be able to roll my EFO into the pre-election uh, fiscal outlook document that they have to put out. Um, but nonetheless, the, the dumping of the tax cuts which are included in the budget actually indicate that this, the deficit is uh, smaller than otherwise would have been, which, of course, is also a good story for the government to tell, unless, of course, they then decide to spend the money on something else. So... I actually think Mr. Frydenberg has his work cut out for him to sort of differentiate himself between um, his predecessor and himself and to justify um, what has happened in Canberra in the last week. Because to a large extent, I think we've only got two or three sitting weeks before the new year. We've got a few sitting weeks in the beginning of next year. And we kind of have to have a government that's currently at a 44% two-party preferred vote justify what it's doing. I don't think you can tell a business-as-usual kind of story. You actually have to come up with something new and interesting and grab the electorate's attention. So I, unless they can do that, I, I, I suspect one, wondering too much about what the new Prime Minister and the new Treasury is going to do is really just moot. We'll be worrying about uh, what a, uh, a shortened government will be doing next uh, um, in, in the new year. That said... The government has indicated it will now look at giving out tax cuts to small businesses as part of their story. I think they're just bringing that forward. Um, we already have that policy on the books. That's right. I, th I think that was legislated. So I think they were talking about bringing that forward, which in and of itself I think is a good idea. I think if you do legislate tax cuts, you should more or less legislate them immediately. Um, they were phasing in over a long period of time. It should have been done immediately. So to the extent that they do do that, they're simply correcting uh, a mistake that they, they, they made last time. Um, but I would actually still like to see tax cuts for big business. I think big business actually does a lot of the investment in the economy, and I think big business actually creates a lot of employment within the economy. 
and of course big business tax cuts flow through to um, individual shareholders. So the argument for big tax cuts, or, or sorry, tax cuts for big business is still there, is still valid, and still needs to be made. And I, I, I thought abandoning them last week um, was probably a bit premature. Um, and perhaps uh, Prime Minister Morrison will sort of rekindle that idea. I mean, he, he does actually more or less have a clean slate. He can do that if he, if he wanted to or he tried to. Um, bearing in mind, I think it has passed the lower house already. It just needs to pass through the Senate. Because the reality is that the government at the time dumped it when there were questions surrounding the previous Prime Minister's leadership. Yes, Yes, yes. And everybody tells a story about how the previous Prime Minister was unable to tell a narrative, was unable to convince people. And I've been reading in the papers this morning that the new Prime Minister is much better at telling a story and much better at telling a narrative. Well, here's his opportunity because, to be quite honest, what else has he got? Um, he has to more or less make a success out of tax cut policy or make a success out of energy policy. And I think on the energy policy front, um, separating out energy policy from environmental policy kind of suggests that they're going to be dumping the environmental policy side of things. Um, But even then, electricity bills need to drop very rapidly, very quickly. And I'm not quite sure how they're going to do that because nothing is legislated there. And as of last week, there's no plan. So I think he has to tell a story on the tax cut side. Um, of course, he could also have bigger personal tax cuts or bring them forward. But also, that's legislated. That's his predecessor's uh, uh, legacy. So it's, it's very hard to know in the, what is it, eight, nine months before an election must be called, how they can differentiate themselves from the previous government, also given how little le- um, parliamentary time is left over, because in the new year, um, it goes into the pre-budget. And the the other complicating part is that I noticed last week our debt had crept up to five hundred and thirty one billion. Yes, of course, it's um our, our debt's going to keep on going up, of course, until we get our budget into surplus. And one of the arguments that I had heard about uh, Mr. Morrison is that uh, the budget is actually going into surplus a lot quicker than uh, was expected, but nonetheless, of course, until it is actually in surplus and is being paid down, um, debt must be rising. Um, although the Australian Office of, of Financial Management did put out a warning, I think last week or the week before, saying that in future there will be less Australian government debt. Well, I would hope so. Um, that's what's supposed to be happening. Um, I would kind of have thought that it had happened already. Now, the new treasurer made sure he circulated, made sure he got out photos and footage of himself having coffee with the a previous treasurer, Peter Costello. Yes. On Sunday morning. Yes. Or Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Yes. Saturday morning. Yes. And um, so, what advice do you expect the previous treasurer would give, Mr. Frydenberg? I think he would have said things like cut spending. Under under promise, over deliver, cut deficits, return the budget to surplus as you quickly as you possibly can, and that was the um, the Howard Costello government strategy in 1997 or 1996, 1997, uh, where there were savage cuts right in the very beginning, and then of course over time the money started flowing in, and then of course they started spending far too much. I would expect that's what he said. I also would have expected him to say, um, "You need to be tough on the economy." Um, Peter Costello always was tough on the economy. He always was very single-minded 
around making sure that we weren't spending too much or that we you know or that sorry that, that the budget was in a good state of affairs the budget currently is not in a good state of affairs, and I think um, he would have given uh, Mr. Frydenberg advice along those lines, bearing in mind, of course, it may well be that Mr. Frydenberg never delivers a, a, a budget speech, much the same as uh, Chris Bowen, um, the last Labor treasurer who also didn't actually ever deliver a budget speech. So um, it, it, it is interesting to the extent that uh, uh, Chris Bowen obviously in the wings to be the next treasurer and uh, – um, and uh, uh, Mr. Frydenberg is also um, sort of like very strong leadership positions. And that is one thing that I do think was good from all of the change is that um, Mr. Morrison is the first prime minister since John Howard, who had previously actually been a treasurer. Um, and and I actually like the idea that you become prime minister having gone through a serious money portfolio as opposed to have gone through home affairs or education or communications or one of those affairs is that you actually want people who, who work with and understand money being in charge. Right. So what do you expect the new treasurer will unveil? I really have no idea what he's going to do. Um, I think tax cuts are uh, if bigger tax cuts, uh, earlier tax cuts perhaps. Uh, that's more or less all that he can do. That's the only lever. <clears throat> pardon me. That's the only lever that he has available to him, and um, has very little opportunity to actually legislate that into place and to, and to tell a story and to prepare the community for faster tax cuts. Um, we still have the same problem we had before. We are cutting taxes at a time which the budget is in deficit which means you have to have a good story. I don't think the government told a good enough story around that last time, which is, of course, why the business tax cuts had to be shelved. So I think that's going to be their story, but beyond that, it's very hard to know what they can do in such a short period of time. Ironically, I I I thought Mr. Dutton's proposal of um, cutting GST on electricity prices would have been a breakthrough uh, uh, policy. Now, I mean, we can argue, is it good or bad policy? I mean, if you're a purist and you don't like to have carve-outs, it's a bad policy. If you're a populist and you think, well, electricity prices have to come down now, um, that was a cut-through policy. I see this morning that Mr. Morrison has already ruled this out. He kind of poo-pooed it last week, but he's definitely ruled it out now. Um, That would be a cut-through policy, but that's also a desperate policy, and it might be perceived as being a a desperate policy. But it would have been very interesting to watch the Parliament's reaction to a serious proposal to actually uh, take the GST off electricity prices. Well, the other the other vexed issue is sorting out the GST arrangements with the states. Yes, 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 yes. And, of course, um, the, the, the argument that, that Mr Morrison put up was, well, that's about $2 billion which the Commonwealth would have had to pay back to the states. But to be quite honest, I don't think that's quite true. The GST is actually a federal government tax. They don't have to compensate the states if they don't want to. And, of course, they could have said to the states, find the money somewhere else. Now, I I, I think we we have serious problems around fiscal imbalance in Australia anyway, and fixing the state finances is something that should be worked on anyway. And Mr Turnbull did flit with the idea uh, every now and again, but he never did any serious work, he never did any serious preparation, never put any serious proposals on the table. Um, And again, it boils down to we've got eight or nine months maximum before we have to have a general election, and you can't reorganise state fiscal affairs in nine months. It's just not going to happen. So we will watch this space with some interest. 
We will, yes. Uh, it, it's 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 a very strange state of affairs, more or less, where you get rid of one prime minister and you bring in another prime minister, and we are still at the status quo. Um, unlike any of the other um, prime ministerial knifings that we've seen over the last ten years, the challenger didn't really get up. And there's been no real change that I can actually observe with the challenger maintaining his same portfolio as he did last week. So it's it's been a, the change you have when you don't have change almost. It's, 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 it's a very interesting state of affairs. And, of course, uh, it, it may even be exciting because there has to be some sort of breakthrough or cut-through policy announced. I just don't know what it's going to be. Well, Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the White House says it is investigating Google for alleged left-wing bias. This comes after US President Donald Trump accused the search engine of hiding fair media coverage of him. Mr Trump also singled out the other tech companies. Google and Twitter and Facebook, they are really treading on very, very troubled territory and they have to be careful, Mr Trump told reporters. In its pre-dawn tweets... Mr. Trump said Google's search results for Trump News showed only the report of what he terms fake news media. He said this was evidence that was rigged against him and others. Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, later told reporters that the White House was taking a look at Google, saying they would do some investigation and some analysis. However, he did not provide further details. Google has denied the allegations. And any negotiations with China are on the back burner, with the United States and Mexico reaching agreement to revise key portions of a 24-year-old North American Free Trade Agreement, a crucial step towards revamping a trade pact that has appeared on the brink of collapse during the past year of negotiations. Reaching an agreement on how to revise some of the most contentious portions of what Mr Trump has long called the worst trade pact in history would give him a significant win in a trade war that he started with countries around the globe, including Mexico, Canada, the European Union and China. Still, a preliminary agreement between the US and Mexico would still fall far short of actually revising NAFTA. So, Canada's Foreign Minister has joined her Mexican counterpart and the United States in Washington to discuss entering into a new North American trilateral trade pact. But US President Donald Trump warned he would still proceed with a deal with Mexico alone and levy tariffs on Canada if it didn't come on board with the revised trade terms. And an all-out trade war could cut Australia's household spending power by almost half a trillion dollars over a decade, according to global accounting giant KPMG. KPMG modelled the impact of a rapid escalation of hostilities where a substantial number of other countries pile into the conflict and raise tariffs by 15%. In that scenario... KPMG said over five years, Australian GDP would be a 2.4% lower than it would have been in the absence of a trade war. In KPMG's modelling, in the event of an all-out trade war, China would not fall into recession, but its economic growth rate would slow to just 4% a year, and it would stay below 5% for around five years, rates of growth not experienced for more than three decades. And according to KPMG, the US beat would be harder hit. Its GDP loss at 4.6% would see it enduring a year-long recession and it would take the best part of a decade for growth to recover to pre-trade war rates. And despite political uncertainty and turmoil, consumer confidence rose last week. According to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index, 
confidence was up 2.1%, following the previous week's 3.5% decline. The new figures coincide with Scott Morrison replacing Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister, resulting in a cabinet reshuffle and a string of resignations. The survey showed households' views about current financial conditions improving 1.2% and sentiment towards future financial conditions jumping 3.1%, partly reversing the 7.6% slide the previous week. However, it wasn't all good news. Ongoing falls in the Time to Buy Household Items subindex were a concern, slipping 2.2% to below the long-term average. Sluggish wage growth, high levels of debt and decreasing house prices are likely to be constraining sentiment in this regard. And the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has announced his new Cabinet, but no one can say who will be taking the reins of the financial service portfolio, despite the scandal-plagued sector hurtling towards upheaval thanks to the Banking Royal Commission. For the first time in many years, the Federal Government has not included a designated Financial Services Minister, a position most recently held by the new Industrial Relations Minister, Kelly O'Dwyer. And that is despite the final report of the Financial Services Royal Commission being due within six months. For the first time since 2007, there is not a dedicated minister for the $3 trillion superannuation industry also. And within days of coming to office, the new Prime Minister Scott Morrison will be off to Jakarta to secure a new trade deal. It will be his first trip overseas less than a week after being sworn in. The deadlock over the deal had been resolved over negotiations in Melbourne. That opened the way for the deal to be signed in September or October this year. Australia and Indonesia were hoping to strike a deal before the end of last year, but they couldn't meet the deadline. Now, the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had been planning to fly to Indonesia this week. And Australia has been pushing for a high-quality free trade agreement. However, strong protectionist forces in Indonesia had forced them to scale back their hopes for the deal. It's not yet clear what concessions either side has made or what the scope of the agreement will be. Mr Turnbull had been planning to travel to Malaysia, Thailand and Vietnam, where he was due to meet top leaders and officials, but that's now been abandoned. And the Victorian government has privatised the Land Titles and Registry Office, reaping an extra $2.86 billion for the state and giving both political parties more cash to make promises in the lead-up to the November election. Treasurer Tim Pallas said the state had granted a concession to Victorian Land Registry Services to run the office for four decades. The new company is owned entirely by First State Superannuation, an Australian-owned fund that has already invested in the New South Wales Land Titles Office. The decision to privatise the service follows comments from Premier Daniel Andrews earlier this month that privatisation had failed consumers when discussing power prices. Now, there's been opposition to Labor's plans to privatise a body with a warning of price rises for the services and concerns over privacy of sensitive information. Mr Palace said the state would retain control over prices for statutory land registry services and price increases will be capped at the CPI. The funds, he said, will be used on new schools, hospitals, transport projects, and the new operators have promised data security would be the number one priority. And the profit reporting season continues, and here are the latest. Virgin Australia has reported its sixth consecutive full-year after-tax loss as asset write-downs drove it $653 million into the red, compared to a $185 million loss a year ago. Boral's full-year profit has jumped 49% to $441 million, following an acquisition in the US and strong earnings in Australia. 
Wind power producer Infogen Energy profit rose by $13.4 million to $45.7 million, buoyed by accounting for a deferred tax asset related to the expected future use of unrecognised tax losses. Childcare centre operator GA Education has delivered a 22% fall in first half net profit to $23.7 million as it adapts to changes in the sector. Spark Infrastructure reported a 10.6% rise in profit to $153.3 million. And after a horror year in 2017, when earnings fell 21%, homeware retailer Adair's earnings before interest and tax rose 46.9% to $45.3 million in the 12 months of June. That's in line with the company's guidance range of $44 million and $46.5 million and consensus forecasts around $45.9 million. Jewellery retailer Michael Hill's profit has slumped from $32.6 million down to $4.6 million due to costs associated with its US exit and store closures. Caltech's net profit, excluding the impact of changing oil prices on the value of stockpiles, rose to $296 million in the June half, only just within the fuel supplier's guidance of between $295 million and $315 million, and up from $294 million in the first half last year. Footwear retailer Accent Group is forecasting about 5% earnings growth in 2019 after lifting underlying net profit by 18% to $47.1 million in the financial year of 2018. Data has closed the first half of 2018 with net profit after tax of $15.7 million, up 21.9% compared with the previous corresponding period. Vitamin maker Blackmores has lifted full-year profit nearly 19% to $17 million on the back of strong demand for its products in Asia and what it called operational efficiencies. After selling the majority of its brand holdings to Noni B in May, specialty fashion group's loss continues to worsen. The group reported an impact loss of $9.3 million, down from a loss of $8.4 million in FY17. And that follows the divestment of key brands Katie's, Miller's, Crossroads, Autograph and Rivers to Noni B in May 2018. And Bellamy's is back in profit, following a major slump sparked by regulatory changes in China. Its full-year net profit after tax came in at $43.26 million, compared with an $809,000 loss in 2017. BWX has reported full-year underlying earnings of $40.3 million for the 2018 financial year, in line with the revised guidance the company provided earlier this month. The Future Fund generated an annual return of 9.3%, lifting it to $146 billion. And Bega Cheese has taken a 79% cut in annual net profit to $28.8 million after a year of expansion, which included the acquisition of the Mandela's grocery business known as Bigger Foods and Peanut Company of Australia. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Actinogen CEO Bill Cattelby. Now, Actinogen is a biotech conducting research into the impact of cortisol levels on Alzheimer's patients. And the company is currently in stage two trials for a medication known as Examinin, which is showing some promise. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.